The following message, entitled, See the Signs, Part 3 of the series, I Am, the Book of John, was given by Stephen Altrogi on the 23rd of October, 2011, at Sovereign Grace Church of Indiana, Pennsylvania. To learn more about our church, please visit sgcindianapa.org. Good morning. If you could please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. If I haven't met you yet, my name's Stephen. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks for coming this morning. John chapter 2, we're in the middle of our series called I Am, the book of John. And we're going to be in John 2, 1 through 22 this morning. And there's a place, if you've ever driven the Pennsylvania Turnpike, there's a place on the Pennsylvania Turnpike that I like to think of as the point of no return. And uh, that place is exit 146, which is the exit for Bedford. And if you, uh, the reason why I call it that is if you miss that exit, you are, and people are nodding and raising their hands, if you miss that exit, you are in serious trouble because the next exit, I don't know who designed the turnpike, but The next exit is about 30 miles down the road and there's no place to turn around and you end up having to get off somewhere around Somerset and Johnstown and you end up adding about an hour onto your trip, probably driving through Johnstown, which is sort of like the armpit of Pennsylvania. (laughs) Sorry, no offense if you're from Pennsylvania, or Indiana's the big toe of Pennsylvania, all right? No offense, no offense, jeez. And almost every time we would get on that, the turnpike, usually at coming back, we would get on the turnpike at Breezewood, and my dad would always say, don't let me miss the exit. Do not let me miss the next exit. And one night about 10 years ago, my brother David and I, we were driving home from Gaithersburg, Maryland, and it was, it was like one of the worst possible nights for driving. It was cold, it was dark, wet, and it was just Buckets of rain pouring down. So it was a miserable drive to begin with. And we were, we got on the turnpike at Breezewood and I knew that we were, we needed to get off on this exit. And if we missed it, we were in trouble because I'd heard my dad say that so many times. So as we're driving, I'm, I know we're getting close to the exit because billboards start saying, do this in Bedford, you know, hotel in Bedford. And all the billboards though, they said that Bedford was on exit 182 which was really confusing to me because as we got closer, the exit was saying 146. And it didn't, nothing said, on, nothing on the exit specifically said Bedford. It just, I think it said Altoona and something else. I forget what the exit actually says. But everything was saying 182 on the billboards. And then when we got to the actual exit, we came up on it. And I'm looking at it, and it's 146, and I'm trying to debate what to do. And so I didn't take the exit. And I slowly cruised past it. And the second I, like, literally, the second I was past it, I was like, that was it. We missed it. (laughs) Da! And what happened is, I didn't know this, but what happened then was, that was right around the time when they were changing all the turnpike exits to match the mileage, the actual mileage on the turnpike. But the geniuses behind the billboards hadn't changed them yet. And so all the billboards were saying 182, and all the exits for Bedford actually said 146. So I didn't take the exit. I knew that I had added another hour of turnpike misery onto my drive. And I had, the problem was I had misunderstood the signs. 
I was reading signs. I misunderstood what they were telling me. And I missed what they were pointing to. And so this morning in the book of John, we're going to see signs. Jesus performs signs, but we don't want to miss what they're telling us. We can get so caught up in the signs themselves that we miss what they mean. And we're going to see they point to something greater than the sign itself. So let's read John 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables, and he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away, do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Let's pray. Lord, we need you. I pray this morning that as we read your word, that it would change us and affect us and that you would let us see more of your reality, of who you are, of your greatness. I pray, Lord, that you would do great things through your word. Lord, I pray that you would help me speak clearly. I pray that your spirit would give us soft hearts. Because, God, we need you. You, only you can make this alive to us. And so we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. The main point this morning of the passage is this. Jesus shows us His glory through the signs that He performs. Jesus shows us His glory through the signs that He performs. And as we read through the book of John... We're going to see that there are seven 
things that Jesus does that John calls signs. And these signs that Jesus does demonstrate that Jesus is the true Son of God. That every person must follow and obey. And this morning we're going to look at two of those signs. And like I said, the the signs are not meant to capture our attention in and of themselves, but to point to something beyond the signs. So the first sign we're going to look at is Jesus changing water into wine. Sign number one is water into wine. And in verses one to three, it says, On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. So the scene is that Jesus and his disciples, they've been invited to a wedding, uh, maybe a family friend of Jesus's, and a lot of the, the smart guys think that Mary's, or that Mary, Jesus's mom, was probably there to actually help in some way with the wedding, maybe like an assistant wedding coordinator or something like that. And so I can imagine the scene unfolding. She's in the kitchen. She sees servants together. They're talking in hushed tones. They're talking. They're pointing at something. She goes up to them. What's the problem, guys? And one of them turns to her and says, we've got a serious problem. We are out of wine. And this guy has a pained look on his face. He's trying to figure out what to do. And Mary says, how in the world can we be out of wine already? This isn't supposed to happen because during Jesus' day, Running out of wine at a wedding was a pretty big deal. It was a bad thing to happen at a wedding. In Jesus' culture, there was this incredibly strong emphasis on hospitality. And so it would be such an embarrassment for the host of the wedding to run out of wine because a host was supposed to provide at least enough wine to last at least for seven days. Yeah, I know, it's a big... Big amount of wine to provide. And some people that I was reading, they were, they were suggesting that there could even be legal ramifications for running out of something at a wedding and that a person could possibly even be sued for running out of wine. Which would be kind of a bummer. Like if you think about, you know, dads, you think about the day of, of your daughter's wedding and you're there and you're having a great time and suddenly somebody comes up to you and says, man, I didn't get a single piece of roast. I hope you have a good lawyer because you're going to pay for this. That would be a downer. And so running out of wine at a wedding, it was a big deal. It would have been a huge embarrassment for the groom It would have been a huge embarrassment for the host of the wedding. And so when Mary hears about the wine running dry, she goes to Jesus and she says, Jesus, they're out of wine. And look at verses four to five. We see Jesus' response. He says, and Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And at first glance, Jesus addresses his mother as woman. And this can seem a bit odd, like almost a bit harsh, But it seems like probably that was actually a respectful term, something along the lines of saying ma'am or just a respectful term to his mother. And he asks her, he says, what does this have to do with me? In other words, what he's saying is, he, he says, what does this have to do with my mission? Jesus knew that he had a mission from God and his mission was to come to earth to live a sinless life and to die on the cross for our sins, then to be raised again. And Jesus is asking his mom, Mom, what does this have to do with the mission that my father has given me? 
Because he knew that if he started performing incredible miracles, that his hour, he refers to his hour often, his hour of crucifixion, he knew that it would come too soon. That he'd be catapulted into the spotlight, that people would want to make him a king, that then the Jewish leaders would crucify him, and he didn't want that to happen before it was the right time. And so he says to his mom, woman, what does this have to do with me and my mission? I came for a particular hour, and that hour isn't here yet. I can't do this right now, mom. And Mary, you gotta love Mary. Mary, like most moms, she won't take no for an answer. I can just imagine her turning to the servants and saying, he's such a good boy. Just do whatever he tells you. It's like she just won't let him get away with it. And I can almost imagine Jesus saying, Mom, I can't do this right now. But even though he protested against his mom, Jesus still agreed to serve his mother. And I love this picture because the Son of God, Jesus the one whom all the angels worship, who had a very specific mission to save sinners, and yet he still humbled himself to serve his mother. And he found a way to serve his mom without drawing unnecessary attention to himself. And I think this is just a quick question for ourselves. Do we humble ourselves to serve other people? Because that's how Jesus lived his life. His life was lived to serve others and to, and to disadvantage himself for others. And so, husbands, do we disadvantage ourselves? Do we humble ourselves to serve our wife, our kids, those around us? For those of you who are students, do you disadvantage yourself to serve other students? Humble yourself? Because this is what Jesus did. He constantly put himself at a disadvantage for other people, even though he was the son of God. Isn't that amazing? Jesus could have just said to his mom, Mom, maybe you forgot what that angel said about me being the whole son of God thing. Remember, I have a mission. But he didn't say that. He humbled himself to serve. And I love, the, I, I love this church because you guys do that so well. This church is full of servants. And I just want to encourage you that if you haven't yet found a place to serve in the church, Dive in and serve, because that's, Jesus is our model for that. He's a servant. Now in verses 6 to 9, we see what Jesus did. Look down at verses 6 to 9. It says, Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And so Jesus sees, he turns and he's looking around maybe to find how he's going to do this. And he sees these six large stone jars, each of them holding about 20 or 30 gallons of water. And he says to the servants, fill those up. We're going to fill those up with water. This is about 180 gallons of water. This is a lot of water. So they fill the stone jars. And then Jesus tells the servants to take the water to the master of the feast and let him taste it. And I have to wonder, what were the servants thinking at that point? Because I don't know exactly how this happened. Did they see the water become wine first? Or were they, were they looking at it and like, uh, Jesus, this is still water? I, I don't know how it went down, but you have to wonder what was going through their head. And we see what happens in verses 9 and 10. When the master of the feast tasted the water now become wine, and did not know where it came from, 
Though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. And When the master of the feast tastes the wine, he's astonished by the quality of it. Because standard operating procedure at a wedding was that first you served all the good wine. And then when all the guests had drunk their fill and couldn't really tell the difference anymore between good wine and bad wine, then you bring out the cheap stuff. And when the master of the feast tastes the wine, he can't believe it. It's so good. This isn't like Arbor Mist boxed wine or whatever that the cheap stuff is. This is good wine. It's delicious. And he says to the bridegroom, you really pulled one out of your hat here. Because most people, they serve the good stuff first and then they bring out the cheap stuff. Well, you, you saved the good stuff for last. You're serving the good wine now. You've done it backwards. And then in verse 11, it tells us why Jesus did this. Why did Jesus bother with this? Because it seems like initially he didn't want to. So why did Jesus do this? Verse 11 says, This is this the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. When Jesus turned the water into wine, what he was doing was he was manifesting his glory. He was displaying his glory for people to see with their eyes. Jesus is glorious. We don't use that word that often, but I think it, it, it connotates greatness, power, superiority, might, strength. And Jesus wants to display that for his disciples to see with their physical eyes. And it was Jesus demonstrating who he was, demonstrating his power, demonstrating his generosity, demonstrating his ability to do incredible, miraculous things in demonstrating that he was who he said he was. He was the living son of God. There is no other prophet. There is no other spiritual leader. There is no other priest like Jesus Christ. He is the living son of God who is great and glorious. And there's two things that I think we need to think about in regards to this sign. The first is, when Jesus does a miracle, he does it in incredible, spectacular fashion. And we're going to see that again and again and again in the book of John. Jesus does not just small miracles, but incredible miracles. And so here, it's not like he just took a 20-ounce bottle of water and turned it into wine. He turned 180 gallons of water into wine. Top quality wine. And this is meant to show us who Jesus is. He's not like a magician who through some sleight of hand and smoke and mirrors and a twist of a a silk cloth manages to somehow change a little bowl of water into wine. Jesus is the Son of God. And when the water came face to face with Jesus, when the water, I don't even know how inanimate objects work like that. But when the water came face to face with Jesus, cells began shifting and moving and splitting and joining together and fermentation started taking place and things, the water that was clear started to go to pink and then to purple, all because the water 
I don't know if Jesus spoke or if he just thought it. But whatever it was, Jesus commanded and the water obeyed. Because Jesus is the Son of God. And when he commands water to be wine, it it obeys. All of creation down to large jars of water obey the Son of God. And it's only us humans who have the audacity to think that we don't have to obey the Son of God. And so the wine forces all of us to ask a question. Do we obey Jesus Christ as the Son of God? Do we submit to Jesus Christ as the Son of God? He is the Son of God. Do we obey Him like that? All of creation obeys Jesus. The stars inhabit their galaxies at the command of Jesus. The planets rotate in the solar system at the command of Jesus. And to not obey Jesus is to spit in the face of Jesus and in the face of God. And so the question is, have we personally submitted every area and facet of our lives to the Son of God who rules over everything? Have you done that? Because all of creation does it, all the angels do it, and we must do it too. Have you said to Jesus, you can rule me? You can rule my marriage and my job and my relationships and my hobbies and my friendships. When Jesus turned the water into wine, it was pointing to the fact that He is ruler and powerful and glorious. And He's to obey, be obeyed at all costs. And the second thing that the, the sign of the turning water into wine shows us is that Jesus is the giver of joy. I don't know if we would think about this initially off the top of our heads. But look, if you have your Bible, look at Psalm 104. Flip over to Psalm 104, verse 14. Psalm 104, 14 and 15 says this. You caused the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. And so when it's used appropriately, without drunkenness, without, obviously, within the legal laws as well, age limit, when it's used in that way, wine can be a gift. I think that's what Psalm 104, 7. God gives us many gifts to enjoy. He gives us earth. He gives us livestock, plants. He gives us food, bread, wine. It's all gifts from God. And I want you to think about the best examples of this being used when friends and family, you're gathered together on Thanksgiving or Christmas. And that smell of the crisping turkey in the oven is filling the house and the, sa- the smell of the stuffing. And everyone's gathered around the table enjoying just friendship and fellowship with one another. And you're eating and drinking together. That's a gift from God, isn't it? Isn't that just a wonderful gift from God when you can enjoy your family, when you can enjoy being with your friends. And you're not abusing God's gifts, but you're enjoying them as a gift from God. And God is the one who invented joy and who invented happiness and he loves it when we are glad and he loves it when we are joyful and when we use God's gifts as he intended they bring us joy when we use God's gifts as he gave them to us 
They bring us so much joy. So wine without drunkenness, that's a gift. Sex within marriage, what a gift. Food without gluttony, that's a pleasure. Friendship without gossip or slander. Aren't those all wonderful gifts from God to be enjoyed and to be enjoyed with thankfulness? Saying, God, thank you that you are such a generous, overflowing God. I can't believe that you would bless us with all these things to enjoy. And God loves it when we enjoy his gifts. And if you think about it, Jesus did not have to do this miracle. He really didn't. He had no obligation to do this. And yet, I believe it shows Jesus' generous, overflowing heart to just bless these people. And sure, there were probably people at the wedding abusing God's gifts, but that didn't stop Jesus from just blessing them. And when we use God's gifts as he intended, it blesses us. But when we try to use God's gifts in ways that God never intended, things go wrong. And that's where we get things like alcoholism, adultery, eating disorders, gossip, slander. All these things are taking God's wonderful gifts and twisting them to where we use them for wrong things. And so this week, can I just encourage you to do this? This should be the way we live our life. Let's enjoy God's gifts with thankfulness. Let's enjoy the gifts that God has given us with gladness and with thankfulness. Saying, God, thank you for your provision. Man, I can't believe you would bless me as you're drinking. I love coffee. As you're drinking your coffee in the morning and you feel it defibrillating your body into action, you can say, God, thank you for coffee. Or as you're eating at lunch, and you're eating a burger, or whatever it is you like to eat, and the juices are dripping down your chin, or you're eating a salad in the ranch dressing is whatever, whatever you like to eat, you can say, God, thank you for this gift. Because gifts from God are meant to be, are meant to be experienced with gratefulness, And they're gifts from him. Some of you are going to go out to eat after church. That's a perfect opportunity to say, God, thank you. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for my family. Thank you that we can enjoy this gift from you. And some of you may not want to follow Jesus because you're afraid of what you're going to have to give up. And let me tell you, you have no idea what you're missing. You don't know what you're missing. You don't have the joy that only Jesus Christ can give. And you will go throughout your life perpetually unsatisfied with a longing in your heart that can't be filled by anything but Jesus. And if you try to live your life apart from Jesus, you are going to live a dissatisfied life. And you're going to try to fill your life with one pleasure after another But only Jesus can fill that gaping hole that you feel. And Jesus is also the one, he's the one who gives abundant spiritual life. Some of the the commentators that I was reading on this passage think that the, the wine drying up was actually a symbol of Israel's spiritual dryness. And that this sign also pointed to the fact that Israel, Israel was very spiritually dry and how Jesus comes in and he infuses everything with new, fresh, abundant, overflowing spiritual life. And I want abundant spiritual life, don't you? I want to have that. I want to have communion with God and abundant spiritual life every day. And Jesus is the one who gives that. And so if you are feeling like you are in a place where you are spiritually dry and your prayers, it's like you pray and you can literally see them come out of your mouth and fall to the ground. And it's like when you read the Bible, it's like reading a textbook. If you feel dry like that, and I've felt that many times, 
we can run to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you please give me fresh spiritual joy and life? Fill it in me today. I confess I'm cold, I'm dry. I need you to help me. And Jesus described himself as the water of life. And if you think about the times when you are brutally thirsty, isn't water a great thing? It's just so refreshing. Jesus is the water of life, and he gives spiritual life abundantly. So this week, let's go to Jesus and say, Jesus, please fill me with life this week. As you're going and you're driving on your commute to work, or as you're waking up in the morning and just sitting down to read your Bible, whatever it is you're doing, let's say, Jesus, fill me with life this morning. I need you. Because he loves to do that. Let's ask him for that this week. And when Jesus turned the water into wine, that was a sign that pointed to who Jesus is and what he does. And the second sign, Jesus does another sign. He cleanses the temple. Look down at verses 13 and 14. This is the second sign Jesus performs. He cleanses the temple. In verse 13 it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. So the scene is Jesus and his disciples go up to Jerusalem. Just a little bit of side information. The reason it says they go up to Jerusalem is Jerusalem literally was elevated. And so it involved walking up a road. So they go to Jerusalem. It's the time of Passover. This was a significant religious holiday for the Jewish people. It was during the Passover that the Jews celebrated when God miraculously delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. And so as Jesus and his disciples walked through the temple... They see that the court of Gentiles, which was a place in the temple, was filled with people buying and selling animals for sacrifice. In the court of Gentiles, this was the only place in the temple where a person who was not a Jew was allowed to go and worship the true God. And so if you were not a Jew, and yet you recognized that that the God of Israel was the true God, you can go into the court of Gentiles and you could offer sacrifice. You could worship the true God. Gentile was a non-Jew, if you're not familiar with that term. And the place of worship, here's what was going on, the place of worship for the Gentiles had been overrun by men who were wanting to make money. And so as Jesus and his disciples are walking through, they see money changers who are exchanging local currency. They see men selling sheep and doves and cattle for sacrifice. And the whole area was probably filled with noise. And these men were probably charging absurdly high prices for what they were asking for. And can you imagine going into a place, can you imagine if you came in here on a Sunday morning and there was just livestock everywhere? Can you imagine trying to worship in a place like that? It would be so distracting. You'd have you got people bumping into you and you got like a little sheep running through your legs. You could not in any way, you couldn't concentrate to worship God. How confusing and chaotic that would be. And when Jesus sees this happening, it sends him into this holy rampage. And so look at verses 15 and 16. It says, And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen, and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, Take these things away. 
Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Jesus finds little, I don't know how long they were, but strips of rope. There's probably strips of rope used for animals. He finds these strips of rope. I don't know if he braided them together. I don't know exactly what he did, but he made a whip out of rope. And just imagine, can you imagine how chaotic this scene would have been? Jesus taking his whip and he's whipping animals and he's spinning around and he's flipping tables over and coins are, I mean, there's these large piles of coins and they're scattering everywhere and guys are probably diving beneath their tables. Some guys are probably trying to get the money that they just had dumped all over the floor. Some people are probably yelling at Jesus, what are you doing? And he's whipping oxen and whipping sheep and driving them all out of the temple. I don't know if he was opening cages of doves too. I mean, it would have just been chaos. And he's, Jesus is yelling at the merchants, telling them to get their stuff out of there. And the reason he dis, does this is because Jesus is on fire for the honor of God. He is on fire to honor God. And these men had turned the temple which was supposed to be a place of worship and honor for God, they had turned it into a place of greed where they were able to take advantage of other people. And Jesus can't stand that. He can't stand to see God's name dishonored and polluted and the worship of God polluted. And so when the disciples see Jesus and they see Him just going going off on these merchants, they're reminded of Psalm 69. Where David, he is suffering at the hands of others because of his passion for God. And he says, zeal for your house will consume me. And David, who was the greatest king in the history of Israel, was consumed with passion for God. And now Jesus, the greatest king in the history of the world, is also consumed with passion for God. And it fuels him to drive these merchants out of the temple. And I don't think this is exactly the point of the passage, but one question it brought to my mind is, do we take the worship of God seriously? Do we take worshiping God seriously? And, you know, we gather together on a Sunday morning, and it's a great time. We're able to see people we haven't seen all week. We're laughing. We're enjoying time together. And I understand there's a lot of distractions on Sunday mornings. We got kids, you know, ripping glasses off and screaming and the little numbers like that are flashing up on the screen and a parent's like, oh, that's my number. And I I deal with these every Sunday. But I, I think the question is, is our overall attitude of worship on a Sunday morning or whenever we're reading our Bible or whatever, whenever we're coming to worship God, is our overall attitude of worship one of reverence, one of wanting to encounter God, one of wanting to give God all our heart, all our strength, all our soul. This is just something I would encourage us to grow in. When we come in on Sunday morning, let's make a concerted effort to give all of our worship to God. And as we sing, let's make an effort to sing with all our heart, with all our soul. And if you feel comfortable raising your hands, you know, you see people throughout the congregation doing that, that's another way to express your desire to worship God. Giving our concentration to God. Whenever we're hearing preaching, get, putting our attention to the front. So let's ask God to help us be passionate for God's honor. And passionate for His worship. Because the angels, they tremble before God. They're in the presence of God and they close their eyes. They cover their eyes 
So let's ask God to help us be zealous to worship him. And when the Jewish leaders see what Jesus had done, they are furious. They're angry. Jesus has just basically started a partial riot in the temple. And they say to him, what sign do you do to show that you have authority to do these things? What sign do you show us for doing things? In other ways, in other words, they want to know what authority Jesus has to do something like this. Jesus, if you're going to do something as extreme as clean out the temple, who gives you the authority to do that? What sign are you going to show us? You need to show us a sign, Jesus, to prove that you can do what you just did. But what the Jews failed to understand was that the very cleaning of the temple, it was a sign that Jesus was the Messiah. When Jesus cleared the temple, that was a sign that he was the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. If if you've got your Bible, turn quickly to Malachi 3. It's in the Old Testament. It's right before the New Testament. Sometimes when I'm turning to these books, I've got to look in the beginning of my Bible to make sure where I know where it is. It's right before the book of Matthew. Malachi 3, verse 1. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. The greed that was occurring in the temple, it had made the sacrifices offered to God impure. It had polluted the worship that was happening in the temple. And so Jesus comes and he comes like it was saying, the Lord will come suddenly And he will purify the worship of the sons of Levi. That's what Jesus did. He came into the temple. He clears out all the greed, all the selling and buying and ripping people off. And Jesus makes it possible for people to offer pure sacrifices to God. Demonstrating that he is the promised Messiah. He is the the Messiah means coming one. It means the Messiah was the promised king that would come. Jesus is this king. He purified the worship of Israel. And that was the sign. They missed it. They missed that Jesus is the Son of God. They were blind to it. And so in verse 19, Jesus says to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? but he was speaking about the temple of his body. I can imagine the the Jewish leaders, when Jesus says, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days, you can imagine the looks they had on their faces as, as they heard that. Is this guy, what's he talking about here? They're looking at each other. And then finally one of them says, "Uh, Jesus, this temple took 46 years to build. And you really think you're going to raise it up in three days? But they didn't understand something. They didn't understand that he was talking about himself. 
And this is really important for us as Christians to understand. We need to understand what this means. In the Old Testament and in the years before Jesus came, there was this expectation that when the Messiah came, a new temple would be built. A new place to worship God would be built. And the temple was the place where the Jews worshipped God and offered sacrifices to God. And what Jesus is saying is that He is that new temple. And this matters very much to us. Jesus Christ is the new temple of God. He is the place right now. He is the place where the people of God can worship God. All worship to God happens through and only through Jesus Christ. We worship God only through Jesus Christ and all the sacrifices that were offered in the temple. Jesus is now that perfect sacrifice. He offered himself as a once and for all sacrifice for our sins. And we now worship God only through Jesus. And so when Jesus says he is the temple, what that means is we come to God through Jesus. And he is the new temple of God where we meet with the living God. There is no other way to God. If you're not a Christian, let me tell you something. There is no other way to God. No other religion gets to God. Jesus is not one of many religions. No other religion gets to God. Jesus said, I am the temple of God. We get to God only through Jesus. And for those of us who are Christians, this is a reminder to us too. When we come to God and worship, whatever we're doing, whether that's by ourselves or together, we always come to God through Jesus Christ, our mediator, our sacrifice, our temple. We only always come to God through Jesus. We're tempted so often to to try and bring other things, other baggage along with us when we come to God. We're tempted to bring our spiritual performance for the week or the fact that we didn't get angry at our kids this week or the fact that we had a good time of prayer. We're tempted to bring all this other stuff with us when we worship God or the fact that we're getting better at certain things. And none of that matters in terms of how we come to God. It's important, but it doesn't affect the way we can come to God at all. We come to God once and only through Jesus Christ, our perfect sacrifice, and that is so freeing. Because when you come, and a lot of times when I come here on a Sunday morning and I'm starting to to sing or I'm sitting down to read or pray, I'm aware of a lot of things that would probably keep me out of God's presence. A lot of things. My attitudes, my words, the things I've said to people or thought. But I can remember, Lord, I come to you this second through Jesus Christ. And you have promised me that I could come. And so I'm setting all the other stuff outside. I'm leaving it there. And I'm coming to you, God, only through Jesus. He is our only way to God. And any time you place your confidence in something else, you are abandoning God's way of coming to him. That's That's abandoning God's way of approach. Now, why did Jesus do this sign? Remember, all the signs point to something greater. Look look at verse 22. This sign points to Jesus himself. When therefore, it says in verse 22, when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had spoken this, that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Jesus did this sign to assure his disciples and to assure us that he is the son of God. This is our assurance that our faith is not a fairy tale. 
Jesus did this sign to assure us that it's real. It's all real. And when the disciples saw that Jesus had risen from the dead, they remembered. Jesus said this. He said He is going to die. He's going to be raised again in three days. And they believed. That's why this sign is so important because it's our assurance that we don't believe a lie. And that Jesus is the truth. And that the death and resurrection, it's not a wild goose chase. Isn't that encouraging to you? I don't want to believe, I have no interest in believing something just because it makes me feel good or because it's what I've always been taught. I want to know the truth. I want to know what is true. And I want to believe that. And Jesus doing this sign demonstrates that He is the truth. He predicted dying and rising again and He did it. So we don't have to fear. We don't have to doubt. We don't have to worry. Because Jesus is the Son of God and He gives eternal life to us. Isn't that good news? Aren't you glad you can put your faith in Jesus? Assuredly, put your faith in Jesus Christ. And that faith can stand in the face of doubt and discouragement and sickness and even death because Jesus has already died and risen from the dead. And so He's our assurance. So as we go out this week, let's thank Jesus for giving us... He gave us this sign to assure us that He's the truth and that we can rest in Him and believe in Him. And for those of you who don't currently believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as your King, can I just ask you to consider what we read this morning? If it's the truth, then it matters a lot. And you need to believe it. If it's not the truth, well then you have no reason to believe it. But Jesus did these things to demonstrate that He is the truth. So what I want to do now is I want to pray. I want to ask the worship team to come up. Let's ask Jesus. Let's all stand. Let's ask Jesus to refresh us spiritually. Let's ask Jesus to give us joy in Him. And to help us see His glory. Lord, we come to You right now. And we, we thank You for sending Jesus Christ into the world to save us, to rescue us from darkness and from the power of sin and from our own sinful desires. We thank You, Jesus, that You're the one who gives spiritual life. You're the one who gives us joy and gladness. And Jesus, You are glorious. I pray that You would let us see how great You really are. We can't see it on our own. Lord, would You help us see it? And Lord, would you give us passion to serve you so that we would be inspired by the word of God to serve you with all our heart and that we would have faith in Jesus Christ. I pray for anyone who is doubting you, Jesus. They're a Christian, but they are doubting you, that you would assure them of your reality and of your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.